Welcome back to The Future Strategist, and I'm here again with Greg Cochran. Greg, how have you been? Oh, all right. So we're going to do our second podcast on uh, Ukraine, and today we're going to talk about the side effects of the invasion, uh, notably the potential for it to cause worldwide famine. Greg, how worried should we be that this, what's happening in Ukraine might significantly reduce the supply of food? Um, some worried. Uh, we know that uh, Ukraine plus Russia uh, adds up to a significant amount of world grain exports. Um, we know that, uh, again, the sum of the two adds up to a significant fraction of fertilizer exports. Uh, it adds up to a significant uh, fraction of potash uh, exports another fertilizer. I mean, the first the main fertilizer that it's involved in is nitro nitrogen fertilizers, but also potash. It uh, uh, Russia is a, one of the major suppliers of natural gas and oil. To the extent that those get blocked, uh, those also have effects. Uh, you know, you need some sort of uh, fuel to produce. Uh, fertilizers in other parts of the world and also of course farmers fuel costs matter for farmers and end up affecting uh, uh, you know prices of crops and so forth so you know, we're talking about uh, the potential I don't I mean I don't think we're likely to get the absolute maximum possible hit here but it's worth thinking about how big it is so there's three potential hits to the food supply. There's direct production of food in Ukraine and Russia, then um, direct production of fertilizer in these two countries, and finally, higher prices of fuel throughout the world. That means uh, higher prices of fuel will raise the cost of making food and creating fertilizer in the rest of the world. You, you combine all these. We're never going to get to the level where Americans have anything to worry about starvation, but there could be the, I mean, the bottom 100 million people in terms of income. They could be hit and they could be in big trouble. Well, I mean, the, the places that are in the greatest danger are the countries that are far from self-sufficient in food. And there are a number of those. Most of them, I mean, by the way, there's people, not whole countries, but people in a lot of not rich countries who can be seriously hurt by this. But I think we're concentrating on the people who are under the greatest threat, you know, which might mean starving to death. Uh, so, I mean, like the places that I know that seem to be likely to be affected are places in Africa, many places in Africa, and uh, sort of the parts of the Middle East that don't have significant amounts of oil. And what's the time frame? When, how long will it take for this to ripple through and for there to potentially be mass starvation? <laughs> well, there's two or three things going on. One is, uh, you know, current, you know, there are things like uh, winter wheat that are being, those were planted a while ago question is whether harvesting them is interrupted in the Ukraine and whether shipment to other places might be interrupted. Then there's the question of uh, in, in, in those areas and others where, you know, what is the availability and cost of fertilizer? Uh, you know, if people use less fertilizer, yields will drop. Um, and the cost of fertilizer has gone up a lot. Uh, there's um, and then there's stuff that might there's other stuff that would ripple in the next year probably, uh, if, uh, you know, it's not, it's like, even if we have less fertilizer, it's at the minimum, the fall before, uh, we see the effects, uh, and, uh, some of the effects probably not until next year. 
but you know, so you could say the total sum of all the effects would be maybe sometime next year. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of course, people anticipate these things, and so prices are up, even though you know some of these things haven't completely you know rippled through yet. But people you know raise prices because they think it's going to. So the price um, of food has gone up. Um, it's going up. Uh, right now, the the price of the basic ingredients has gone up a lot. Now, with a lot of the things you buy in the supermarket, like you know the price of wheat does not add up to a whole lot of the cost of a price of a pound of bread, but it does contribute. Um, and I could say the same about corn and so forth. Uh, you know, this is mixed in with general inflation. You know, for probably fairly straightforward monetary reasons. At the same time, at least in many places, it is. Uh, so, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, people expect shortages, and uh, now you have to be careful. Like, shortage is like a reserve word in economics, and it means at the prevailing price you can't buy it. So you, I think you mean like the supply would go down and the prices would be higher, not necessarily what economists would mean by shortages. To be pedantic as an economist. Uh, if it has technical meanings, I promise I don't. In economics, I promise I don't know what they are. So okay. you can straighten me out or tell me if it will make things clearer. But uh, it, you know, like one of some of the background is there are countries that are very poor. There are significant numbers of countries in Africa where, you know, let's say 30% of the food is paid for by foreign aid. I mean, they're that far from being self-sufficient. Now, sometimes this is true for a particular year, but there, in any given year, there's usually several you know a number of countries in africa where that's the case uh and now the thing in the uh, middle east and north africa is most of those places um you know population has increased uh past the ability of local agriculture to support it in a number of those places for different reasons uh but uh uh now saudi arabia they can afford Pretty much whatever happens, uh, Kuwait can, Iraq can if they can just avoid stealing all of the money the government gets from oil. I mean, there's certainly enough that even if prices doubled, people in Iraq wouldn't have to starve. But they might, you know, because again, people do steal a lot. In place, Iran is a substantial oil producer, although there are limitations on their exports. They're probably not in the worst shape, but there are places that, are, like Egypt depends a lot on importing wheat. And although they're not the poorest country, they're pretty poor. They're certainly not self-sufficient in food. Uh, uh, and some of these countries were already in various kinds of trouble because of, you know, local war or anarchy or something. Like, you know, Yemen people were starving anyhow. It can't get easier if food is – if food prices go up, if food availability is decreased. Uh, Libya's – in like a three-sided civil war or something, or maybe it's down to two now. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they had their oil production working in an uninterrupted fashion, they would make enough money to feed everybody if they had a government, but they don't have a government, and their oil production is much interrupted by the civil war. So it's a combination of things. Uh, like Ethiopia, Ethiopia, you know, they I think they routinely import a fair amount of food, although they also produce a lot. But it's kind of irregular because they they have you know you know a country there are countries whose weather is more more variable than others and in terms of drought Ethiopia has bad years where you know like if you're talking about a drought 
in England, I says, by the standards we're talking about, they really don't have them. But some places do. Ethiopia is one of them. And, of course, Ethiopia is running a civil war right now, too, with the Tigrians. And, again, that makes everything more complicated. So there may be some other countries that fall in this category, but the ones that I have heard most about are in various places in Africa and uh, the poorer parts of the Middle East are the ones that people uh, – I mean, sometimes people are saying, oh, but they're used to importing – wheat from the Ukraine or Russia. I don't think that's the most crucial thing. You know, if you have the money, you can find and like, you know, if if the supplies are there somewhere else, you can buy them somewhere else. There's no rule that says you have to go to the same source all the time. The real problem is if the total supply decreases significantly. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, that you can't solve purely by shopping around to a different source. Right. The price will be much higher and you just might not have the funds or the government might not be willing to spend the money to feed its whole population. Uh, it might not be willing. It might not want to. It might say, hey, there's this one fraction of the population we never really liked anyhow. And we'll make a point of making sure they don't get anything and the uh, people that we trust get more. Yeah, That's been uh, they. someone talked about this happening in China in the old days. They call it the two province system. You know, if there was a two provinces next to each other, both were starving, uh, you would look and see which one is more loyal to the government, and you'd seize the the food from the starving one and giving it to the other one, uh, you know, from the less loyal one and giving it to the more loyal one and saying, well, you know, those guys will die, but we never liked them anyhow, uh, or something to that effect. That's a, a cheery model. Uh, by the way, China is not on the list of countries that are in trouble. China does import a bunch of grains, mostly for feeding animals, which means, I mean, you wouldn't absolutely have to do it. I mean, you know, in a crisis, you could, you know, shrink your, your, you know, you you kill a lot of pigs and so forth, and you don't have to keep them around. Uh, so it's it's more a standard of living thing than a uh, survival thing. Yeah, and China so could China, easily outbid uh, most does of not that. have to do this, but. Yeah, China could easily outbid a lot of the rest of yes. the world for food. So. And and that's one of the things, which, for example, I don't th- you know, Ukraine, uh, they are actually being invaded and pounded. It really gets in the way of getting things done. Russia, not really. So, uh, I mean, Russia is, is facing various kinds of uh, of uh, sanctions and boycotts, but they, but for example, to the extent that they. Uh, can sell their grain products in, say, China, the the world doesn't suffer a deficit from that. I mean, that probably means the Chinese buy less somewhere else. Uh, you know, it, it, it goes into the it, – it doesn't necessarily change the overall supply level very much. Uh, will China do that? I would guess they will, but I don't know for sure. I would guess that if there's – you know, most countries are saying don't buy Russian, the Chinese will say – but it's cheaper. Yeah. Um, uh, the same is the case for things like Russian oil. Yeah. I, I'm worried that U.S. government policies could make this worse. From an economic point of view, we want the price of food to go up because this will encourage people to try to make more food for farmers to put you know, new land under production. But if the U.S. government decides to demonize big agriculture and blaming them for high prices of food – and they impose price controls, they don't allow big agriculture to export food, 
then, well, less food will be grown. And just even taking this into account will cause agricultural firms in the United States to not plant as much. They'll figure, well, we really won't be able to take advantage of very high prices in the future because political pressure would force us to keep down the prices. Well, yeah, but that's your fault. My fault? How's that? Uh, who is your senator? Oh, Elizabeth Warren, yeah. And she, by the way, I could swear she used to know better, but she'll talk about things like that and talk about how companies are doing X because of greed, which probably if they don't do things because of greed, they usually go bankrupt instead. Yeah, uh, she's currently blaming the high price of gas on oil companies' greed, which, you know. But that's, you know, that's that's primitively stupid. Uh, the, uh, I mean, who did she blame when oil dropped in the early 80s to $11 a barrel and all sorts of investments based on assumptions about oil? Uh, for example, this is the major cause of the savings and loan crisis. People had assumed that oil was going to be very high, and uh, people built uh, they built housing uh, in areas they thought would would have oil booms, and then it didn't happen. And all that housing in places like Houston, you know, they were some cases they were paying somebody to live on the block to keep somebody else from coming in and stealing the plumbing. Uh, oh, which is another interesting thing with with the uh, savings and loan crisis. Everybody said, well, it's it's theft, but very little of it was theft. What it was was, you know, mistaken investments, investments that assumed that the price of oil would stay on the order of, you know, something higher than now if you account for inflation, which is what it was in, say, 79. And then uh, because many people adjusted the high oil price, for example, many countries uh, would use oil as a fuel to – uh, for you know, to for generators to make electricity, and when the prices went high, they almost all stopped and switched to other things, which materially decreased the demand for oil. That plus you know various other responses, the price of oil crashed. Uh, it didn't stay high, and all the people who invested a couple of hundred billion dollars in uh, um, various suburbs uh, in Colorado and New Mexico and and Texas. They lost their shirt, mm -hmm. but but it, but very little. I saw an estimate that of the two hundred billion dollar loss, five billion was theft. <laughs> but you know, but it's, it's remembered as theft. At any rate, uh, anyway, but yeah, uh, the key there is markets will adjust, and that should happen. There's a lot of ways markets can adjust to getting less fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine to getting less food. They, but they, they have to be allowed to adjust, and sometimes governments uh, well, don't let it's that actually, happen. It's sometimes it's hard to stop them, but uh, but that doesn't mean they always do the best job because you know if there are consequences that that happen that in retrospect you can say well that was kind of inevitable going to happen if we had a but there's certainly been cases in which the markets aren't very good at seeing that I mean or at least don't see it as early as certain other people did uh, like I, I have this hypothetical situation in which there is a a plague. That's going to spread all over the world, and then someone might have said, "Well, that cake can't really be as serious as all that because the market would already have shown some sign of reacting to it." Yeah. Saying back in February of 2020, and but it didn't. No, it did eventually, but it didn't do it as early as as we did. That's true. I I should have invested based on what we thought. I would have made a lot of money, but I just didn't think I was smarter than the market. Well, I'm lazy and cowardly, so I didn't, <laughs> but I should have.
Uh, also, I had faith that even if the market went down, the Federal Reserve would pump it up again. Yeah, but there was that anyway. But yes, you could have made money out of the dip. I knew there were people who listened to our podcast who did take advantage of it and thanked us verbally. Yeah, not uh, chat. At any rate, yes, uh, what you're saying could be right. Uh, uh, but uh, commodity markets are predicting much higher prices of food, right? They are going up. There, you know, the current prices are record. Are, I think they're at records. Probably, uh, I guess the real question is, I haven't seen enough data. Are they at inflation-adjusted all-time records? I think they're pretty close. Uh, uh, I mean, and that's complicated because the price of producing wheat is lower than it was 50 years ago. So. You know, you can't it's, – it's apples and oranges. Yeah, and the you basket for inflation is different for the U.S. compared to people in Egypt where food is a big part of so what they consume. But, so. but certainly nominal prices, you know, 16 uh, – you know, where I grew up, if I had told somebody that someday uh, soybeans would be 60, $16 a bushel, they would have refused to die just to make sure they lived until this day. Uh, uh, it uh, but uh, but the question is, um, you know, how big is this problem, and you know what can be done? Uh, I mean, by the way, markets in some sense are trying to make this better, but uh, that doesn't mean there aren't government actions that could help. Um, so I would say our topic is what can be done. Well, before we get to that, let me just—I want to stress. I totally agree that. It's hard to know how markets will adjust because we we just can't extrapolate and say, well, Russia's producing this less food, so there's less less food in the world, because you know the prices are going up and people will do different things. They'll find workarounds for fertilize for not having as much fertilizer. They'll shift what they're producing, and it's really hard to know how that's going to play out. Well, if you knew enough, you would probably know a lot of the, you know, saying if I have, uh, you know, say. Here's the new situation. Here's the new price of fertilizer. Here's the known relationship between fertilizer use and yields. Here's the expected yields. You could say, well, the, presumably they'll do something that optimizes this, which is probably a linear programming problem. And literally, farmers actually have little piece, little linear programming things that they will run that will give them information on. Many of them do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, we might – you ought to be able to figure out some of it. But when you start talking about second-order things and stuff – and also, there's some deeply unpredictable things buried in the middle of this that are important, and it's hard to know. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure you can't predict at least some of it. I mean, and some of it also, we it's already happened. So, for example, we already kind of know what people are planning in the U.S. Uh, for most of the Corn Belt because they've already made up their minds. They bought their seed. It's really – you know, it's kind of impossible to change. So uh, I saw that uh, people are planting somewhat more soybeans because apparently the prices have gone up more on that than other things. Uh, I mean, it's gone up in many things, but that's one of the most. And I'm not sure it's quite as dependent upon nitrogen fertilizers as corn is, although they still use them. I'm not sure it needs quite as much. So, you know, you end up with a bunch of of equations that say if I do – if I spend this many dollars in this way, how what's my return versus other possible ways? Uh, anyhow, they're supposedly planning about 8% more soybeans than last year, and corn, corn has gone down by some similar amount, uh, which is, I mean, it's not a huge change. And part of it is, you know, the 
the surprise, the uh, the situation in uh, Ukraine, it's hasn't been that long, and it's you know it's it's true that you know the the system adjusts, but the physical part of the system in terms of people growing, what if you it turned out it was better in this new situation to grow corn rather than soybeans or soybeans rather than corn? You're still perhaps kind of limited by the amount of seed available, which depends on decisions a while ago. It's like turning an ocean liner. You can't do it instantly. Again, now, by next spring, people have a lot more ability to change, but not too much this year. Uh, so, I mean, even though many things are possible, few of them are instantaneous. Yeah, markets always adjust more in the long and the short term because there are a lot more things to change. You get more information. You can explore more possibilities. And you've got fixed inputs in the short run that over the long run you can vary. Yeah, but, you know, even in a couple of years, a lot of things can happen. But, for example, what's one of the things here? Uh, like one question is what what are reserves? I mean, how much food reserves? And if I understand generally that that number is not a real large number. I mean, what what we kind of – make our bets on in terms of reserves is that it's unlikely to have a uh, a serious crop failure everywhere on earth at once so they say well you know things may be bad in australia but there's no particular reason i think they will be in iowa uh but but i don't believe reserves are very big uh uh there there is no seven years of uh that we've been of fat years that we've been saving food from i mean we could have but we don't yeah, that seems a big a big problem. I mean, there could be a volcanic eruption. There could be, you know, nuclear war that puts up a lot of soot in the atmosphere. We really well, we have a policy. It, we've decided not to think about it. Yeah. The uh, I don't know if there is there anyone who thinks of Mormons. Mormons are recommended, and many do keep. I forget. It's like six months or a year of very basic food stuffs available. Uh, uh, but, you know, but that's good because, you know, if we have trouble, we'll go steal it from the Mormons. <laughs> the uh, – uh, but uh, I'm trying to think if I know of any country that actually makes a systematic effort. I mean, like, for example, uh, people have said, suppose you had an asteroid hit the Earth that threw up a bunch of dust. It could be vastly weaker than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. But, but one way to talk about its importance, what if it threw up enough dust to uh, – ruin the crops for a year or, you know, drop the production by half or something for a year. That's not it. You know, that's a smaller uh, asteroid. It's a lot more likely than a big one like the dinosaur killer. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other comparable things like, a you know, the right volcanic eruption in the wrong place uh, could really hurt world crops. I guess – there's been a couple of years. Well, you know, the most recent one that you might be more likely to have heard of is called the Year Without a Summer, 1816. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there was a, a very large volcanic explosion in Indonesia, a volcano called Tambora. It put enough dust into the air that it made the world significantly cooler for a few years. And that meant in certain parts of the world, uh, crops were damaged or ruined. So, for example, a lot of New England states, they talked about the year without a summer. Uh, now, as far as I could tell, I looked at this some, it doesn't really look like there was any, If I can't say zero, but there's no sign that anybody starved to death in the United States, basically because the place 
was very agriculturally rich. And, you know, as long as some places weren't hurt, uh, and actually, if you were in a place like Maine, you could survive a year by going out and shooting moose. I mean, there was there was a lot of game around, again, in 1816 compared to later times. There were, um, you know, there were things that people didn't like to eat but that existed and could be eaten. Uh, but, you know, there's other parts of the world that were not, you know, didn't have, like, the highest standard of living and calories in the world, which probably was close to true of the United States then. Although back then people worked hard enough, they were not also fat. But there was plenty to eat in the United States almost all the time, and and we got by. But there were places that did not. Uh, so, for example, the last time there was a non uh, a famine that was not created on purpose, the last time of that was in 1816-17, and it was in some interior parts of Europe. Uh, see, the key was crops were ruined, but uh, transportation wasn't up to moving them from other places. Like there were people who starved to death in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Switzerland didn't have good communications. You know, railroads didn't exist yet. That's basically it. Where in a place, uh, you know, parenthetically, this is one of the things that made some of the countries in Western Europe seem relatively more important in 1800 than they were in 1900 is back then it wasn't quite so much area that really mattered for your national strength. It was closer to, uh, uh, you know, what you might call surface area, the amount of your land that was close to the ocean. Mm -hmm. Because uh, not only does, you know, that usually have, you know, a decent climate, moderate uh, rain and so forth, but it meant you could ship things other places. So, like, here's here's the last really strong example of it. Russia was a much bigger country, and it was starting to have more people. Uh, but in the Crimean War, which is the 1840s, the British and the French could get more supplies to the Crimean Peninsula than Russia could. That's why their armies won. But because it was all, you know, it's how close you are to the coast. You know, it's how much coastline you have. Was National power came from coastline, not area. Now, after railroads show up, you have a cheap form of transportation that can reach everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's and this really... It's, you know, railroads were a great thing for Russia. They were a good thing for the United States. The United States already had a decent communications network with the Ohio and Mississippi system, but the railroads let it go everywhere. So uh, at any rate, but, uh, uh, yeah, nobody, I mean, I know of nobody who makes any real plans for these, po you know, disasters that we actually have historical records for can't be called purely speculative but you know do we plan for it uh not explicitly no i don't i mean nothing i can see um uh, can you think of anything along those lines i i, I don't mean, yeah certainly governments don't at least they don't consider yeah. one in a hundred risks yeah uh i mean um well uh, let me correct that so i can think of ones they do but it turned out you could solve it for you know you could completely prevent it for a chicken feed so, like a Carrington event, you know, that was the time there was a, a you know, a super solar flare mm -hmm. that hit the Earth, what was it, 1856, something like that? But, and it was such that, you know, the telegraphs ran without hooking them to batteries. <laughs> I mean, there was, you know, all sorts of northern lights were, ex you know, extremely strong. Uh, all sorts of electrical things were happening. But the world didn't depend much on electrical devices, so no real harm was done. 
people have suggested that today you might knock out the power grid. Um, and the, the weakest spot people were talking about was we have certain big transformers that apparently, you know, uh, at least under normal circumstances, they take a while to make and they would probably all be ruined. Uh, and over the past few years, peep, the government and the utilities did an uncorrect characteristic thing. They built some spares. Mm. And that's all, you, I mean, that's all you need. I mean, and so, you know, if we have a Carrington event, we may have a lot of electronics ruined, but the main power grid, it'll all get the, the most vulnerable, difficult places, there are spares. So you'll get it all up again within probably a couple of weeks. Uh, so, there, I mean, but the reason I think people did this is it was cheap. Mm. I mean, for example, if there was a way to shield the world uh, uh, from the effects of some, some something that really messed up agriculture, uh, I think that if it cost a million dollars, they'd do it. I mean, I mean, shoot, I mean, Elon Musk would probably do it. Uh, somebody would do it, but uh, although it's not impossible, it would cost a lot more than that. At least with, you know, any approach that I can think of. Well, um, how much if you were like grow a lot of corn as cheaply as you could, and then um, expose it to low levels of radiation and store it in like salt mines or stuff. Like, how long could you keep it for? I don't know, decades at least. I mean, you could have a system in which, if it, let's suppose that in practice it's to the point where, you, you know, it's, you really want to either eat it or, you know, not let it age any further after, say, 20 years. Mm -hmm. You could have, where you're constantly putting some new stuff in and taking some old stuff out once you've built it up. But yeah, you could do it, but nobody wants to. I mean, there's, there's a fair number of things like that. Uh, actually, that thing about the Carrington event, kind of surprising because, again, normally our policy about uh, – I mean, like our policy with – like what was our policy with, uh, uh, you know, uh, a new dangerous respiratory virus? Yeah. I said, well, I, it's not absolutely clear that our policy wasn't to create it. <laughs> Yeah, which you would have to think of that as kind of a suboptimal I mean, policy. We certainly weren't stockpiling huge amounts of mass. Uh, well, I mean, if you, you know, that was interrupted by fundamental misunderstandings. Most of the people in epidemiology believed, except that a couple of cases where the evidence was so obvious that they were unable to ignore it because they wanted to ignore it. Apparently, is they believed most respiratory things were not spread by aerosols. Oh, all right. I mean, and including many that were spread by aerosols. I mean, it's it's sort of a couple of experiments got misunderstood, then they got turned into something they taught these guys in school, and literally the main big guys in this did not know the right answer. CDC didn't know, Fauci didn't know, WHO didn't know. Uh, they were when they were saying. You know, and all this stuff, oh, yeah, we didn't want to run out of masks, and that's why we said ordinary people not to use them. That's a lie. They they didn't because they thought they could never work, and that is incorrect. They can be useful. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not like wearing armor, but they're useful. Uh, and it, what it meant was that on in many ways, the people doing epidemiology were totally incompetent at their job. I mean, for example, understanding how the flu spreads might have been a useful then thing. How would they ever have gotten jobs in academia? That doesn't make sense. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to go down that road? <laughs> I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> okay. 
uh, uh, but yeah, they're idiots. Uh, I mean, literally, part of it is there are jobs that are probably paid less and less prestigious that could benefit from having some pretty rigorous thinking, smart people, and those people go mostly other places. I mean, there's many historical examples of this, uh, like uh, like when World War II happened, the British found that their smartest guys had not been had not been going into the army. They didn't have a big surplus of talented guys as higher officers. Now, the Germans had more, and it wasn't purely money. It was, to a large extent, you know, prestige, which can be somewhat independent of money. And the United States had a similar problem. We didn't have lots and lots of bright kids going into West Point, in, you know, in the years before this. Uh, so, you know, uh, now, by the way, you also have to think of, well, maybe they did even better things than what they did do. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's better to have crummy generals and maybe they're better at something else. I don't know. But uh, but there are places in which, uh, and if you want, I will start to list them, where the typical caliber of the people involved in doing work in this field is not enough to do a very good job. Yeah, we're probably drifting a bit for our topic. Yes, we are. <laughs> But um, um, so let's go to like what what can be done. So if um, somehow we could convince Biden this is a problem he should worry about, which is it's not impossible. I mean, he food, probably doesn't want people to starve to death in Africa. I mean, food is probably something he still understands. Yeah. Uh even if it's maybe he's not an evil man, so probably probably. I mean, he doesn't have that much energy. He couldn't be that evil. The uh, but yeah, it's uh, by the way, starvation in other parts of the world. It's harder for people to get excited about than something here, but mm. but again, particularly if we can think of remedies that are not too expensive, people are not necessarily against it. The United States has made significant efforts when it could easily do so to keep famine from happening in other parts of the world. Uh, India had some very serious crop failures in the middle and late 60s, and we saved their bacon. We sent them. And, you know, the United States was saying, oh, we have all these crop surpluses. So we kept starvation from happening in India. That's why everybody in India loves us to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, in places like uh, um, where we could, I mean, Japan was very seriously malnourished in like the year or two after World War II. And when we noticed it happening, we did something about it. And we didn't even like them. At that time, yeah, but we um, owned them, so they're, they're basically a U.S. colony at the time. Well, so it yeah, reflected we, poorly on us had they starved. Well, the Japanese were perfectly happy to starve people, and we weren't. There was a difference. And the third thing is, we also had a solution. The United States was then as now of agriculturally very productive. We could say mm -hmm. solve the problem. Uh, so, uh, so you know, we could talk. Uh, the United States is not the only country who can do something about it, but we could probably do more. Than any other single country. So the U.S. Yeah. could grow more food, and what's um, the policy lever that we could? Use? I mean, the market will do some of this by saying, "Hey, agricultural future prices are going to be higher." Um, one is, uh, uh, you know, the government subsidizes agriculture. You know, if there are you could subsidize it more, or you could also look to subsidize it more effectively. Some of the things we do. Don't much get in the way of production, but at least a few of our decisions do. And if we could, you know, change our mind on those, you know, correcting a mistake is kind of a cheap way mm -hmm. to get an improvement. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
we use a certain amount of corn on gasohol. That probably doesn't – most years it doesn't make sense because it isn't uh, and It's not just economical. that we use it. The, the government forces gas companies to include this biofuel stuff in it. So this isn't something that the market's doing. This is saying – the government's saying, we don't care if it's efficient or not. You must do this. Uh, correct. Uh, and by the way, there are places in the world where it's done differently, and it may – some of them it might actually make sense. I mean it turns out you get a lot more uh, alcohol per acre with sugar cane. Uh, and in Brazil, uh, it might make sense. It certainly makes it comes certainly comes closer to making sense than it does with corn in the United States. So one thing you could do that would have essentially zero cost is get rid of the gasohol program. Not just zero cost. I mean, economists generally want to get rid of all this stuff. This would benefit the U.S. economy and reduce the possibilities of, of famine in the future in the world. So um, it's something we should be doing anyway. The effect. I mean, I I was misinformed when we were talking about this a few days ago. I had seen somebody say that a really huge fraction of U.S. farmland was dedicated to it. I think that person was confused and had read something about how much it would take to produce enough gas, you know, enough ethanol to completely replace gas. Well, what we do with it is we, it produces 10% of essentially of American fuel. And the amount of farmland used is about, say, about 4%. Okay. So that's small, uh, but the total amount of food that can be grown in that four percent is quite. That's well, the a other lot thing, of people could be it's four percent of the United States, the most yeah. productive, agriculturally productive country in the world, and and but you know stopping doing something stupid is a free lunch, uh, and so you know thinking hard, which economists have done sometimes about this, <laughs> about whatever the dumbest things we do in this area, uh, and say don't do that. You know, like the old the doctor in the old vaudeville routines, you know, says, doctor, my, my arm hurts when I do like this. And they say, don't do like that. So uh, another thing is uh, the United States uh, make sure the price of sugar in the United States is considerably above the world price. Now, that has consequences. We do a couple of things that if we had, you know, a more free market agriculture, we wouldn't do. Uh, one of them is, for example, uh, there's about three places in the U.S. we grow cane sugar. Uh, I doubt if any of those would continue to do it. If, yeah, it's much easier. Price. It's much easier to grow sugar in Brazil than the United States. So in a free market, we don't grow sugar, but sugar makers in the U.S. don't like that, so they lobby their congressmen, and the only people who really care about the price of even sugar though are the, these Even though the number growers. of people involved is very small, it trumps the general interest. The other yeah. example, uh, which probably involves more land, is people growing sugar beets. And uh, again, I don't think anybody would grow any sugar beets in the United States except for the fact that we are artificially keeping the price of sugar high. So, you know, but, you know, those things are probably not big compared to this problem, but they're free. Mm -hmm. Now, what else could you do? One of the problems is if uh, the cost of fuel is uh, going up, which is needed for, you know, for tractors and things, but also for, you know, like the fundamental process that is the main fertilizer process, which we've mentioned before, the Haber-Bosch process, it takes energy, which is from some sort of fuel, uh, uh, or could even, you could even build a nuclear power plant, except that we know we've sworn off doing that. But uh, uh, it takes energy, it takes uh, it takes air, it takes water, and it takes a catalyst to speed up the process. And the catalyst is mainly rust 
you know, this is one of the most magical processes ever invented. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't get better than, you know, all, all, you know, the basic ingredients are air and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we typically use natural gas, uh, and we use the hydrogen in the natural gas as the source of the hydrogen for the ammonia we're making. Ammonia is NH3, but we don't have to. You can get hydrogen out of water. So, and that's certainly what the Germans did in the beginning. But the question is, what can we do to, you know, to effectively drop the price of fuel? And the instantaneous things we can do are, um, there's probably a couple of things we can do. One thing is, there are certain places where we had coal plants that we are abandoning for natural gas, uh, partly because a new natural gas plant is actually produces electricity pretty cheaply, and it generally produces less pollution than uh, than a coal plant. But it might be that for you know the immediate future, keeping some of those coal plants open might be a good idea. I mean, because it would free up natural gas and other fuels for other purposes. You know, it's effectively it drops the price of the overall fuel mix. Uh, I mean, to the extent that those coal plants are closing only because, you know, of, say, government rules and so forth. Uh, Now, mind you, if it was terribly expensive to run them, it might not be sensible to reopen them. But, for example, in New Mexico, there are some coal-burning plants up in the Four Corners area, um, the northwest corner of the state, and their plan is to shut them down. They do produce certain kinds of pollution that really have some negative effects, basically particulates at a certain size range are kind of not good for people with certain kinds of heart and lung problems. You know, in terms of health, that's the biggest effect. Um, and uh, so the plan was to close them down this summer, and New Mexico was building other kinds of power sources, um, wind and solar. I mean, solar is, you know, it's cheaper than it used to be, and if you have to do a place to do it, New Mexico is not the worst. Uh, like solar in Germany has always struck me as, like, can that really work? Uh, you know, Germany's pretty far north and cloudy. But at any rate, uh, uh, but before the before the Ukraine war started, uh, the people making these decisions in New Mexico said, we're not going to have that stuff ready in time. If we close things down on our current schedule, we will have blackouts in August. We will, we will. And we don't want to. So they came up with a simple compromise. Let's let that coal plant run until the end of September, after which your your big power burden from air conditioners is mostly done with in New Mexico. And so, yeah, it wasn't crazy. But I would suggest that they revisit the question and also talk to the feds about this. And I keep it open at least another year, mm-hmm. which, you know, the marginal cost, it's already there. The mines are there. The Navajo, who actually own the mine and Navajo miners tend to work in that mine. They'd love it. I mean, there aren't they? They have trouble finding decent jobs up in that area, and this this is one. But uh, oh, by the way, there's another thing they might consider. Oh, you know, one other thing, a slightly longer range, would be to build more nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of uranium mines up in northern in that same area, and people. I think every one of them is closed right now. Because the price of uranium has been very low. The price of uranium is low because the Russians have taken apart a lot of their bigger warheads and taken the uranium, diluted it down so it's not as enriched, and then sold it for use in power plants. And mines can't compete with that. Mm -hmm. So many mines are closed. But they could be reopened. 
And it, it may be that, uh, although there's a lot of positives to having the Russians take apart nuclear weapons, I'm not absolutely sure that commercial relations with Russia are going to be like a big thing for the next few years. Well, it's got to take more than like three years to build atomic power plants, though. It didn't used to. Really? What did it, well, how? all right, how long did it take before we started the Manhattan Program and then we had enough plutonium from breeder reactors to blow up Nagasaki? I said, what is that? Three years. But but it was easier when we didn't know how. Yeah, okay. Uh, like, all right, how physically long if you got through – well, I mean, you know, there were very similar things. How long does it take to make a vaccine for, say, coronavirus? I remember an article in the New York Times that said they expected to see it around uh, 2032. Mm. Okay, but I cheated. I knew that people have, were – under pressure were able to whip up a useful vaccine in less than six months in 1918 against bacterial pneumonia. I knew that people had managed to make a useful uh, flu vaccine against a new strain, a new dangerous strain in 1950. Mm. And they could, couldn't have taken more than six months. Now, I didn't know enough about RM, mRNA technology to know that you could design a new vaccine over the weekend. <laughs> but I knew that the New York Times was misinformed. And so, by the way, many people in academic medicine were saying the same thing because they didn't know anything about it either. They knew that many things do take that long, okay? But, you know, I could take the freeways that took 25, that we spent 25 years building, but I also know that we built most of the interstate system, which is a lot more than one little segment of a freeway, in, like, while Eisenhower was president. And he didn't, and it wasn't all of both terms that they took to build it. I mean, a, a lot of the things that we take a very long time to do, it's not because it physically inherent, inherently takes that long. It's because we pick suboptimal ways of deciding, ruling, you know, how, how the court's involved, how people can complain, so forth. And it's, if you want to, and we did want to, for example, with that, with those coronaviruses, we said we need to cut through these things and, make the amount of time required close to the physical minimum. We still didn't push as hard as we could have. You know, we should have had, uh, uh, you know, tests where we deliberately infected people to yeah. see how it worked, but uh, challenge trials, but we didn't do that. No one did, interestingly. But, uh, but the point is, how long does it actually take? And the answer is, I don't know, two years, three years. It can't be more than that. People have done it. I mean, that that's an iron rule. If somebody does it and they do it, and they get a decent job done in two years, that means it's possible. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, now England is talking about building more nuclear power plants. They say, oh, we're going to build seven by 2050. And I said, you know, I'd aim for, you know, seven by 2030. I mean, you can build several at once. There's no rule against this. Uh, but another very short-term thing to do is, for example, in Germany, they closed down a bunch of nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. I don't know the details. It's possible that they've taken them apart in a way that would be hard to reassemble. But if, if it is possible to start them up again, they should consider it. Now, I know that this happened in Belgium. They closed down a couple, and they did turn them back on just in the past few weeks because they said, look, looks like, you know, we maybe don't want to be totally dependent on Russian natural gas. There could be maybe a downside to that. Uh, 
which Germany is pretty dependent on that. Uh, so, uh, but you know, I don't. There are technical details that I don't know the answer to, but I suspect, in fact, you could restart it. I also know, if push came to shove, you can build things like mad, and still do a quality job of it because people have in the past. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, at worst, Germans should build their nuclear power plants. And if they can't reopen the existing ones, and then they should find the people who made the decision to get rid of them and fire all of them and try to keep them in a safe place where they can't hurt anybody else. Uh, the, uh, I mean, it's not always, by the way, a lot of the expense of nuclear power is from these same processes that slow it down. But inherently, it may not be as cheap today, certainly in the U.S., as natural gas, because it takes a lot more hardware. The fuel is very cheap compared but it does take more hardware, more expensive hardware than a natural gas plant. Still, I mean, uh, it has certain advantages. You don't have to worry much about, I mean, look, we can produce enough uranium ourselves. We would never, you'd never go short from outside. And the world as a whole, uh, I mean, for example, there are people who say if we used uranium-230, enriched uranium-235 reactors, you know, we would run out in, if the world used them very heavily replacing other fossil fuels, we would run out in, oh, I forget, 50 years or something of easily findable deposits. As an economist, you know what that means, which is, you know, what is the definition of an ore? I said it has enough of, of some substance that it's economical to extract at current prices with known methods. Yeah. But these things change. But there's also, see, mostly, uh, you know, mostly people are trying hard to come up with a false answer because, like uranium is seven tenths of a percent two thirty five, and that's the part we use in reactors. But you could uh, transmute, and we do in a British reactor, the two thirty eight into plutonium, and that mixed with two thirty five can also be used in a reactor. And then there's thorium. There's two to three times as much available thorium as there is uranium. Probably primarily because it has a longer half life, ten billion years instead of four and a half. So, you know, there's only half as much 238 as there used to be, and even less, 235. It's got a 700 million year half-life. At any rate, uh, thorium can be bred into uranium-233, which can, which you can make a bomb out of, and we've done it just to prove we could, I think about once. And you can also use it in a, in a, in a power reactor. Uh, now, if you do both of these things, use breeders and also add in thorium, you increase your effective reserves by... Oh, I forget, about 300 times. Hmm. And 300 is a big number. It's not a big number in number theory, but it is a big number in economics. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, are there advantages to this? Sure. Uh, and if you're concerned about uh, carbon dioxide levels, well, uranium, you know, fission reactors don't contribute. Uh, so, but, I mean, you know, I don't think that these key decisions have ever been based on, you know, let's say, logical, uh, you know, the sort of arguments that people say are the ones that really drive what people, what governments must be thinking. I don't think actual governments ever think those things because, you know, there's no somebody running with a slide rule determining it's basically a bunch of lunatics. Uh, uh, well, all right, some of them are just fairly foolish, not all lunatics, but, you know, it's not terribly rational, the big decisions. Uh, um, but uh, 
Anyhow, we'll, one thing that we could hope for is Germany decides to uh, go back to nuclear power. Uh, uh, there's even intermediate things. Like, let's suppose, by the way, it's generally speaking, construction, which is government projects are literally 10 times more expensive to not build something than it is to build something in a country in Europe, which you don't think of as, you know, they're all pretty socialist and so forth, but they have fewer barriers to getting things done than we do. I saw a comparison, uh, one of these ultra-fast trains in Spain. It was about the same mileage as the uh, one from uh, the one that we supposedly are building from L.A. to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. But it cost uh, – the projected cost of this, which none of which has actually been built, I mean, no useful part of it, is $100 billion in California. And they already finished it years ago over a short period of time for $11 billion in Spain. I said, why? I said, well, you know, they wanted to do it, and we would rather dick around. Um, that's, that's kind of what it boils down to. Yeah. For but anyhow, what can we do? Uh, we can look for irrational things that get in the way of production, and those would be free lunches. There are at least a few. There might be more in other countries where I don't know as much about the agricultural policies. Well, I have a question with agricultural policies in the U.S. How easy is it for farmers to plant new land? Do they need government permission? Well, there'd have to be new land. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, that is, but that's an interesting question. Like, if you own land, uh, generally you can plant it. Now, if you have contracted with the government saying, I will not plant this land and they will pay a certain amount per acre, there's a limited amount of that done. And usually because it's trying, they're trying to, they say, we, we think it would be a combination of, oh, we were feeling like years ago there was too much production, but also, questions like we're saying we think that that area is highly prone to erosion mm -hmm. and, and we're trying to discourage that uh, there's some of that but I mean in terms of highly productive land that is not farmed in the United States I don't think there is very much now if you talk about less productive land that could be farmed but that has uh, you know would inherently have lower productivity there's some of that. I mean, there's there but, must be a lot. I mean, if if you raise the price of most agricultural products by twenty percent, there must be a a lot of land where it wasn't worth it before, but now it is. Some of these things have changed over time. Like much of New England, like I I wish we had an aerial photo, but since this is before the airplane, probably it won't be. But most of Massachusetts used to be covered with farms, and now most of it's covered with forests. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that was fairly unproductive land uh, in the sense that growing seasons are shorter there and the and there tend to be big rocks all over the soil there was a, a famous example John Adams father there was a particular field that he was kind of expecting John Adams to clear so maybe he'd inherit it and farm it it was called the stony acres mm -hmm. I mean you know all those stone walls you know they pulled those rocks out of the fields by the way coming from an area covered by glacial till in Illinois, the idea of a rock, any rock, even being visible, is horrifying. <laughs> you know, in, you know, I mean, like where I grew up, like there was a rock that was nearly, it must have been five feet tall, mm -hmm. that was south of town. People used it as a landmark. I mean, that was a boulder. It was nearly the size of a human being. 
And that was like one of the very few rocks you saw sticking out anywhere in the county. Uh, but New England is different. And what they did with that field is sell it and send him to Harvard instead. Because it looked like he didn't really want to spend all his time picking rocks out of the field and building them into walls. Uh, anyhow, the point is uh, you would get less per dollar of seed and fertilizer and time when you put it into land in Massachusetts, but you'd get something. Mm -hmm. And uh, now when I remember a few years ago in which prices were unusually high, there were places where people were converting non-farmland to farmland. Uh, but it wasn't Massachusetts. It was like somebody had a golf course in Iowa, and they said, you know, there are people are not really playing that much, and they're offering us $3,000 an acre, which is, you know, farmland high for, you know, non-city land, and they they closed down the golf course. Uh, but, but the golf course was not the best land in the vicinity. That's why it was ever the golf course in the first place. But it's way better than anything in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there are many places you could farm, but, you know, naturally, the first places you would add would be places that were almost worth farming, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah. Which would be like that golf course. Uh, now, there are places where the government pays people not to farm, but I think that's a much smaller thing than it used to be. And I, most of the examples that occur to me are things where people are trying to deal, you know, they're trying to deal with erosion and things. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of good farmland the government is paying people not to use yeah. in the United States. Is there a lot of government-owned land that's not being farmed, like in national parks, where the, it just... Most of that, uh, there is a lot of land owned by the government. I think they own a third of the land area of the United States, yeah. mostly in the West. Most of it is not terribly productive. I mean, some of it was occasionally used as grazing land for cattle, mm -hmm. and the Forest Service has been trying to discourage that, uh, they claim that, you know, the cows crap everywhere and they, uh, uh, you know, they act like they're buffalo, but they're not, so they don't count. At any rate, uh, there are some things where, you know, there's certain kinds of other animals that would be, you know, threatened by this. But the probably the primary reason is increasingly the people in the Forest Service don't want any humans to get on their land. I mean, like with national parks, increasingly they resent the tourists. And you can tell, talk to them, they don't want you there. Of course, the response is, I guess we shouldn't pay you anymore. Yeah. You should live off nuts and berries like the squirrels. Uh, but uh, uh, but truthfully, most of the land in the West, under current circumstances, would not be very productive because it doesn't rain very much. Uh, uh, I mean, most of your national forest, I mean, some of them, uh, by the way, another thing, people occasionally use them as they would do some lumber harvesting, and they've cut way back on that, too. Uh, and part of it is because there's influential people in this world who, you know, they say, if you say, here's a piece of land, I want to do something productive, you know, produce something useful to humans on it, they're automatically against it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, if I, can re if I can readjust those people's political power to the optimal level, which is uh, – a zero, of course. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then there. Are you, but you're not going to get enormous amounts out of it, simply because the West really is dry. Uh, although that, you know, we shall leave the way of dealing with that to another podcast, I think. Uh, but I will say the magic word. If you say it three times, it makes the desert green. No wapa. What's? I've never heard of that. Really? Yeah. 
Have I never met? Okay, you're kidding. All right. Uh, look, there are many water programs that are used for irrigation, usually involving some local river or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody, you know, in the Corps of Engineers who had apparently uh, found some extremely potent uh, versions of hemp came up with a plan in which uh, we dam some of the rivers in Canada that go into the Arctic Ocean, and mm-hmm. we divert that water. There's a sort of uh, a trench down the middle of the northern Rockies called the Rocky Mountain Trench. We divert the water from, like, the Yukon and the Mackenzie into the Rocky Mountain Trench. We pump it over the Continental Divide, and and we irrigate the entire southwest. Yeah, that seems an obvious thing to do. There are versions of this in which there's also a, 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 you know, a side canal to the Mississippi. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, there it involves uh, 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 the uh, uh, some irrigation of northern Mexico, but it means all sorts of places that are currently not very productive, fundamentally limited by water availability. You know, places in Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, parts of California. Uh, you know, you make the desert bloom and and the other thing is, of course, it's environmentally friendly because a lot of those environments are in pain and they need to be put out of their misery by utterly destroying them. Well, uh, we, we would be taking a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere if we did that, wouldn't we? I mean, um, you know, uh, when you grow stuff, if you then harvest it, it's you know, it, it all gets eaten or burned or digested, so there's no lasting change. But we keep growing it. The total, on average, a total amount of there would stuff be a little bit of difference, higher. but. The main natural forces that keep oxygen high are in places where stuff grows and is then buried, like a swamp or a peat bog. Mm-hmm. Those are the actual ones that are producing oxygen steadily, mm-hmm. because if you keep burying more, the same forces that make coal are the forces that produce free oxygen. Mm-hmm. You know, you take organic stuff and you bury it in a way it can't can't oxidize. Uh, sometimes. Stuff in deep ocean trenches where there's no oxygen can, that can also happen, you know. So if you have fish die or plankton and it drops to the bottom of the ocean and it's covered in sediments, so it never gets. That's ultimately the source of oil. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any rate, Nawapa uh, was thought of back in the 60s, and back then they're also thinking of doing it efficiently, which meant using project plowshare type techniques for some of it, uh, which means using nuclear explosives to dig canals and yeah. blow holes in mountain ranges and stuff like that. Uh, by the way, the Russians had some similar ideas because they have a lot of big rivers that go north. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about diverting them to irrigate uh, Central Asia, uh, but they never got around to doing it. Anyhow, so this idea, which was originally developed by the Corps of NOWAPA stands for North American Water and Power Alliance. Uh, now, it is generally thought that it would – you know, there's a couple of places you have to pump water uphill, but there's even more places where it's going downhill. It looks like you produce a fair amount of hydropower at the same time, net, although some people have argued it might be close to neutral. But but it's enormous amounts of water is available in, you know, all over the West, which is, you know, almost entirely, you know, the reason that you don't have green areas is that it just doesn't rain that much in the interior United mm-hmm. States. And so... Uh, if you uh, if you t- if you explain this in some detail to a typical environmentalist, it's entirely possible their heart would stop. But this seems like the perfect platform for like Trump to run on, to help you know, win votes in that area. To say, well, take Canada's water and 
you know, irrigate. They'll, and they'll pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, well I think I mean, you we know, could. Uh, but, but let me tell you certain problems. One is the number of people who would directly benefit it. I mean, like the average person in the West isn't doing something agricultural, although, mind you, it would increase if we did this. But even today, I mean, the number of people who are actual farmers in this country, you know, we farming is so efficient and so mechanized, the very few people are direct farmers. I mean, I think about if we're talking who something other than a hobby farm, we might be as few as half a million people. Mm-hmm. That's a small fraction. Now, that was once it was true that most people were farmers. I mean, like in 1900, it was still probably most or, you know, 55 percent or something. But it's not the case anymore. So the so the people who might and also if you're a farmer in the Midwest or let's say Ohio, that you probably aren't any better off for this. You just got more competition. Mind you, with the world population at the size it is, we'd find a use for extra food if we grew it. But uh, uh there have been historical things like this, water projects that have been extremely important, uh, uh, things like the Grand – now, here it was for transportation, but the Grand Canal, which linked up a bunch of rivers and things in Canada, in China, so you could ship things cheaply over the entire interior of the country, at least the eastern part. That was – that you know, that was – had – it permanently shaped. It changed China. Uh, there have been – you know, it's like the sort of irrigation things you had in the early days of civilization in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those had lasting effects. Uh, there have been others. Uh, but uh, we, I mean, such things have been unfashionable for years. Uh, you know, even much smaller ones, uh, which are technically less risky and so forth. You know, we, uh, California had a plan to build many dams to harvest a higher amount of water from the mountains than they currently get. Uh, they got about half done, and then they quit. And it wasn't because they went broke. It's because opinion turned against it. I mean, you know, the typical person who's influential in the Democratic Party in California doesn't want to build a dam and, would, in fact, would be happy to get rid of the existing ones. So, uh, And they've even done that, I think, in what, the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir? I think they drained it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't like this stuff. Uh, and... And it doesn't really boil down to economics. They just don't like it. Uh, I mean, like the real reasons people have opposed nuclear power plants are, in my view, mostly psycho, you know, they aren't practical reasons. They are, you know, it bothers me inside for reasons I can't under- explain. Yes, would Trump like this? Yeah, he might. He, it might even, you know, be a positive issue in the country as a whole. But there's a lot of influential people who, desperately dislike things like that but none of them are going to vote for trump so that's possible uh uh i mean i could tell you a political quote political unquote person who has advocated nawapa fairly strongly lyndon larouche do you remember him (laughs) oh god yeah Yeah, not a good ally to have he well he was crazy but you know if lyndon larouche had said you should drink at least three glasses of water a day it would not have meant that it was wrong you know, it's nothing – you probably should drink more than that. Uh, but uh, the fact that a crazy person is for a plan does not prove the plan is crazy, although it, it is fair to at least check mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh, but, uh, yes, anyhow. But, by the way, this would be a project that would take at least several years. It can't be a major part of any solution of immediate problems from the Ukraine-Russia war. 
although if there is a lot of starvation, we could use that as a motivation to get this project done. We could say, look, we don't want this to happen again. In Canada, um, wasting the water is genocidal, basically. Well, the Canadians, by the way, the Canadians don't do anything with most of that water. The part that goes in the Arctic Ocean, they mm -hmm. might harvest some salmon. But that's, but even so, generally speaking, they wouldn't want us to have it, even if it was, it, even if we paid them. Uh, but again, part of that is this general environmental attitude that the works of man are always a mistake. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, uh, I've seen extreme examples of this, but I would say a lot of these people, if you give them a time machine, I said, do you want to stop uh, colonization of North America by the Europeans? Do you want to stop uh, pioneers from cutting down trees and starting farms? They'd say yes. Mm -hmm. uh, now, mind you, the world would be a worse place, but that's not what they're concerned about. Uh, but uh, Nawapa, now we should talk about that in some more detail another time. But as I said, that would be a project of years. Uh, but in the short run, the things are, uh, you know, can you can you legalize things that would solve partially solve problems? I mean, if we could, uh, if we have if we have agricultural decisions, you know, government policies that affect agriculture that reduce potential output with no real payoff, uh, and we know of some, right? Where we talked about, you know, are there free lunches? I don't think they're enough to solve this problem. Uh, I'd say one of the things that is one of the biggest solutions is violate uh, uh, sanctions on Russia. And I'm sure the Russians are going to do it. And I think they'll probably succeed on many things. Yeah, or at least taking into account the trade-offs that if we do succeed in stopping Russia from exporting quite so much oil, that will probably increase expected amount of famine. And maybe it's worth it, but we at least should acknowledge the trade-off. Certainly right now, the people making those decisions – aren't thinking real hard about these side effects. No. I mean, it's not the first thing on their mind. They're thinking of, you know, towns being shelled into rubble in the Ukraine. It's not wrong to think about that, but it is a good thing to think about the other side. Of, of course, the other side effect, which would be perhaps even worse. Actually, no, maybe it would work out because, you know, if, if all you do is nuke the big cities, the farms would still be fine. We'd have vast agricultural surpluses, I guess. Yeah, that would put uh, set up into know, the you air. You have the problem. <laughs> you have this funny. Uh, so they say, I don't know how big a problem that actually is. But it also depends on the time of year and other things. But uh, the the real problem here is we have somebody who started an aggressive war that was intended to be conventional, but was also intended to win, and they're not winning. You know, they're really, really bad at this. And um, so we have this delicate, you know, it's potentially delicate situation, which is we don't want these people to succeed in invading, conquering, and destroying another country, but we'd like to curb them without making them go nuts and fire off lots of nuclear weapons. Yeah. But thank God, you know, we have somebody making the key decisions who's, you know, as subtle and highly intelligent, rational and knowledgeable as, say, Talleyrand or Metternich or Bismarck or Benjamin Franklin, you know, making all the key decisions. Of course, no one knows who he is, <laughs> but he's but he's got to be there. Some uh, well, Bismarck didn't yes. help Germany long term, so it may be better. No, to... <laughs> Bismarck was not the kind of troublemaker that later Germans were. Bismarck. Now, he did a couple of things I think were not not just and pushy, but he 
there were th- things he was willing to stop. We should do um, like a five-hour pay-only episode on Bismarck. You have to pay like twenty dollars. <laughs> I will. I will have to brush up on my Bismarck, but yeah, I we'll, know we we'll treat a few he, biographies. He didn't want to conquer everybody in Europe. Uh, well, he knew he, he couldn't conquer everyone in Europe. Well, that's and... an important thing to remember. <laughs> but he also knew that if you push too hard, you turn everybody into your enemy, and he didn't want to do that. Yeah, he, he knew the optimal amount to put what he could get away with. He was like a kid who misbehaved, and he did just the amount he could get away with and not get in trouble. He and, looked at, uh, like he he had a fixed policy of he didn't want to get involved in any conflict with Russia. Uh, he said about the Balkans, he said, you know, the Balkans are not worth the the bo- bones of one Pomeranian grenadier. He said, I don't want to get involved in the Balkans. The people there are crazy. There's lots of wars over nothing, and there's not much to win. So let's not. Yes, okay. but he also made France a long-term enemy of Germany, which is dangerous for Germany. That's true, <laughs> although that also was part of the process that unified Germany, which yeah, was key but he, he paid that price, but it set up. It meant... But then other people, <laughs> you know, it didn't have to be that way. But what was the what was my favorite example? Uh, oh, you, you, you know what he sort of lost power over? Uh, I mean, yeah, the Kaiser didn't like him anymore. It was a new Kaiser. And... Well, yes, but the but the particular issue was everybody was excited about, well, we got to get African colonies. This was the scramble oh, yeah. for Africa. It had become technically possible for Europeans to wander over Africa and without all getting sick and dying. So they all, and since Africa was not very good at resisting, you could grab all of it. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happened, with the exception of Liberia and Ethiopia. Every part of Africa got claimed by England or France or Italy or Spain, and Germany got involved some. Uh, and 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 so and and not only that, we could people could argue about it, like say, oh yeah, it really depends on which of us gets to control the southern part of Sudan, because you know everybody knows how valuable the southern part of the Sudan is. Uh, like England and France came, at least had a serious crisis over it at Fashoda, mm-hmm. but. Bismarck had this screwy attitude about colonies in Africa. He said, why the hell would you want that? Yeah. By the way, economically and in every other way, he was 100% right. Those places weren't terribly useful. But uh, but he had committed the ultimate sin, which is he was not believing the currently fashionable thing. You know, There is nothing so powerful as a stupid idea whose time has come. Uh, and he didn't buy it. He actually wasn't a stupid man at all. And so people said, well, it's vital that Germany have African colonized. He'd say, no, it isn't. That's just stupid. And and if it leads to conflict with France or England, it's hyper stupid. Yeah. And so people said, well, you, um, you know, you know, people said, you don't understand. You don't need companies that make money. They just have to have their stock keep going up. They don't actually have to even have a product, you know, we are now on a permanent high plateau. Uh, and so they fired him uh, because he made too much sense. Uh, uh, I mean, he may have also been obnoxious. I wouldn't, I mean, I'll rule yes. that out. But uh, uh, okay. he was pretty smart. And uh, he he was ambitious and pushy, but he saw limits. At any rate, what can be done? Uh, I would say look for things that the government can do, ideally easy things that can make it easier to deal with the energy situation. Right. And and that and and in some cases we can gain at least somewhat by dropping some foolish policies 
in agricultural subsidies. No. There may be other bigger things to think of, though. What about Europe's agricultural policies? Don't they have like this absurd concern about genetically modified food and fertilizer and stuff? That's and... a good one. That's a good one. Uh, actually, that might be interesting to cobble up an estimate, which is what if uh, Europe and some parts of Europe you know, are pretty significant agricultural producers? Mm -hmm. uh, what if they embrace GMO variants? Now, that matters. Uh, uh, it's useful in corn. I don't know as much about the, you know, what the payoff is in things like corn. I mean, in wheat, but but that that would that's a free lunch right there. Mm -hmm. There are things in which it would clearly have higher productivity if they just said get over it and use those things. I mean, most of the ones I know of, I'm semi-familiar with, involve something that uh, gives you a special way that you can now use a herbicide without threatening the, the plant, your crop, because it's now resistant to that herbicide. Uh, so, you know, there uh, there may be others. I mean, there's others coming down the, the road. I mean, for example, one of the most fundamental and interesting ones, some people at the University of Illinois, my alma mater, have come up with a way, genetic engineering, that somewhat improves the efficiency of photosynthesis itself. That sounds scary because you release that in the wild and it takes over and destroys you know, the rest of the biosphere. I don't think you have to worry about corn taking over. It's, it has too many pests. We can always release a few more. But in principle, you've got a point. But point is, isn't it interesting they've gotten to that point where they can do – because if – It's weird that they've, well, be, they've beaten billions of years of evolution. And imagine all the experiments well, evolution has done throughout uh, the last well, billion years of photosynthesis. Apparently you know? there are things that are effectively, you know, like you would have to – you know, they're like making a change in X. You'd have to make really drastic changes to make things better. And the the phenotypes that are intermediate would be worse. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thing. That, but I'll tell you, the efficiency of photosynthesis is far from the theoretical. In fact, I can tell you off the top of my head what the theoretical, the highest possible efficiency of photosynthesis mm -hmm. is, and it is oh, like ninety percent. Like that like a physics thing of transferring. Yes, yeah, it okay. has to do with the relative temperature of the sun and the earth. The sun is about 20 to 95%. The sun is about nine, is about 20 times hotter than the earth, mm -hmm. the surface of the sun. Uh, and, and that limits it. Assuming, you know, it's, it's like a Carnot engine. Carnot is a French uh, physicist, mathematician who, uh, figure this out longer. So this ago. is the theoretical. This is the, with the thermodynamics portion of our podcast. Yes, right? you, you can't. Yes, we have. Uh, and again, we will talk. We will talk about Gibbs free energy is the key mm -hmm. idea in the Haber Bosch process on another podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. So there. Uh, you know, this is a highfalutin yes. podcast. People from Bismarck to thermodynamics. Yes, but uh, but the thing is, normally photosynthesis is not terribly efficient. It's, I forget, just a few percent less. I think less than five. And they can make it, I think they can improve it, you know, say if it was three, they can make it four and a half, some number like that. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. a million times better, but it's significantly better. Uh, but, you know, dropping prohibitions against GNO in Europe, that is a really, a really clear example of you would get at least something uh, out of it and it wouldn't cost you anything, really. Uh, so, you know, uh, in a sense, you know, stupid policies are our way of, having a reserve for tough times because when tough times happening, we're doing something incredibly stupid. All we have to do is stop. 
This yeah. is this is an argument in itself, just for thinking of stupid things to do, just so we can quit them when, when the time comes. Of course, we have to think of why we have those stupid things, and it might be the They're, political barriers, it might be biases people have that we can't possibly overcome, even if it's to stop Africans from starving to death. Um, well, I'm, I would say, let me be blunt about it, especially if it involves preventing Africans from starving to death, because people, you know, in terms of their revealed preferences – do they act as if they care about distant people they don't know terribly well in trouble? Yes. Do they ask mm-hmm. as if they care very much about them? No. Yeah. Maybe. Am I being am I being unfair? Uh, I mean, I think that's the case. Uh, um, I mean, this will never happen, but we could like try to start some meme that if there is a famine and politicians don't get rid of these stupid things, then we'll try to damn them in history books by saying you you were blatant racist. For not what? getting rid of biofuel mandates now, and you what, should have why, known the effect. Why don't we make little wax dummies of those politicians and stick pins in them? Yeah, um, that might be as effective. Because I'm told it works whether you believe in it or not. The uh, and you know maybe these politicians are superstitious and it would work. I mean I don't know. It's an easy try, but uh, uh, you know, but they don't. I mean well like for example, uh, uh, there are places in Africa where the cheap way to deal with mosquitoes involves DDT. What they do mm-hmm. is they put DDT on the inner walls of houses and you know and that's you know and mosquitoes don't like DDT. They'll avoid the house. You know it doesn't have to be a real high level and the amount it takes to do this is similar that I mean for a whole country like Mozambique is similar to the amount they used to use on one big plantation. Okay, you don't need as much. You just need enough to discourage them. Okay, and there are uh, there are countries there that are so poor they depend upon foreign donations for some. Like for example, their health organization mm-hmm. may depend primarily on grants from other countries, and some of those other countries won't give it to you if you ha- if you use DDT even in this extremely limited way because DDT is evil. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and what, when they're saying that, they're saying uh, an imaginary risk, because, again, these levels are very small. They're not a risk to local wildlife or anything. An imaginary risk to local wildlife is more important than actual people dying of actual malaria. That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's a known thing. Uh, and uh, so if you judge by how people acted, uh, you would say – I mean, people in Europe, people in the United States, you would – now, by the way, there are exceptions because there are also people who do very helpful things for Africa. They give them aid, as I said, which is a substantial part of the food budget for some mm-hmm. of those countries. Uh, so I guess you can't actually say that black lives don't matter, but they can't matter a lot. I mean, it's – people are definitely – I mean, they're actually logically inconsistent. Sometimes they are fairly helpful. Other times – they are heedlessly destructive in ways that you don't even get anything out of. Well, let me ask you another type of help. There's an organization called Effective Altruism, and they do have billions of dollars in aid, and they do actually care they actually about African lives. Yeah, some of them, they, they're being very well funded. If this effect, if people from an Effective Altruism organization are listening and they say, we want to spend $100 million, we're not going to solve the problem, but you know, we want to save as many lives as we can from starvation, how should we spend this $100 million over the next year? What would you suggest they do? 
Well, I'm suspecting that this is not something they have expertise in, but again, you have to start somewhere. I might hire lobbyists and say, let's get rid of gasohol. Let's okay. uh, let's get rid of the ban against GMO. And by the way, also look around to see if you have anything else. Again, free lunches are the best lunches, right, from an economist's mm-hmm. point of view? I mean, yeah. there are other things we could do that cost a lot of money. But let's start out by trying to find the things that don't. Yeah, I think you're probably lunch. right. Focusing on making quick political changes might be the easiest. Well, I'm not saying that's the only thing. Yes, when I, when I managed to convince – by the way, uh, one of the things I always thought was funny is I never – didn't think about effective altruism. <laughs> I always thought, does this actually work? And not only that, can we find creative well, ways to make it the, work better? The reason but I was thinking pe- that before these people were even born. Well, but, but you didn't network, though. See, that's there are people who oh, are really no. weird and care about this kind of things, and they networked and got together and formed organizations. So that that's part of what they were doing. The part right, of the effective that part. For something. Yeah. That might count for something. I'm just saying when people say, well, this is this great new idea. And I said, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe you should tell Norman Borlaug. Yeah. Well, so yeah, he, he's, he's like the patron saint of the, the movement. Like this but is the point is, what worked really well. He's just somebody who did his fucking job. That's yeah. the rarest thing in the world. Yeah, uh, that and getting rid of smallpox are the, the two like best examples well, of effective the smallpox thing. You no, know, Henderson was the guy who was in at the end of that. And there you had kind of a weird situation yeah, where with the Soviets, he suspected yeah. – that the reasons the, the Soviets supported it so much was once they succeeded after a while, people would stop getting shots and all their smallpox warheads on their ICBMs would be much more potent. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I have not heard that Norman Borlaug had to make any <laughs> actual deal with the devil. Uh, but, uh-huh. you know, but that's kind of what Henderson had to do. Uh, that's an interesting problem. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a thought. Uh, but of course, you know, when when we get the the uh, you know the effective altruism people are pushing for Nawapa, <laughs> nuclear, a nuclear power plant on every block. Uh, I said, boy, it's going to sound like 1956 uh, uh, because you know people used to kind of casually do things just because they made sense. I think they try to be practical, so the Nawapa thing might until they at least get Canada on board. <laughs> maybe we need a new abbreviation, but. Making the desert bloom is a respectable thing to do. Yes. Uh, but, uh, I mean, unless you're a desert freak, and, of course, there are people who are. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, lobbying might be the thing with the biggest – I mean, most of the studies of lobbying, apparently, you get enormous returns. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, sometimes you get your way, and you could, they could have a whole industry that wouldn't even exist at all because it doesn't actually make any sense, uh, like gasohol, uh, like the – that part of that involved a particular company uh, giving campaign contributions to several people over very long periods of time to the point where the people said, look, I, I depend on these guys. Uh, so uh, like uh, Bob Dole got – the company I'm thinking of was called ADM, yeah. Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, uh, I could talk about it because my sister no longer works there. I would anyhow, by the way, but uh, but then she'd be bad. Uh, but she doesn't, so it's okay. The uh, – uh, and they gave heavy contributions, legal contributions, but very consistently for very year, many years to some guys who eventually became important in in Congress and sometimes running for off, higher office. Uh, but but the things they wanted you to do were always a bad idea economically. Uh, um, but uh, 
Anyway, yeah, maybe they'd be interested in something like that. Of course, by the way, and this would mean even greater branching out from them, there is an elegant solution that has a high probability of stopping this whole problem in the butt. Ending the war in Ukraine. There is a particular sub-variety of ending it that promises decisive positive results in oh. as little as a day. Is that gonna saying that get us both permanently banned from ever visiting Russia? Uh, uh, I wanted to say Petersburg at some point, but <laughs> permanent is a long time. All right. <laughs> I mean, for all I know, uh, like for example, if my ideas happen by you know somebody else acts on them, I mean, and many people have similar ideas, uh, they may say, "Yeah, you were uh, prematurely correct, and and we like you for that." I'd uh, be afraid the alternative would be worse. I mean, could be, but I'm I'm not worried about it. But I mean. I think there's a reasonable chance. It's hard to be sure. But if we had new leadership in Russia, that new leadership would not probably feel that they were about, you know, they were committed to this particular mistake. And that could mean they could do things that were drastically more sensible. So, I mean, historically, we know that there are a lot of things Stalin did that were kind of bad. Yes. And when Khrushchev got in, you know, after a little bit of for a while, it wasn't absolutely clear, a couple of years, that Khrushchev was coming in. And although we did not like everything he did, he was not as bad. And but, so he did, he did things like he let 90% of people out of the gulag. That's but, a good thing. But Stalin was a candidate for the most evil monster in all of human history. So reversion to the mean is likely to say the next guy won't be as bad. Well, I mean, uh, I would say right now there seem to be many, very many negative consequences for Russia from this adventure. Yes. I don't think they're getting what they hoped out of it, and they've got a lot of other bad things in terms of economic, uh, you know, boycotts and restrictions and sanctions on top of it. And bad. if if we had somebody else who said, "Hey, that was not my policy," uh, by the way, he could have even actually supported it. But a, he could say, "Well, it didn't work, so I'm against it." And it's easier for people to abandon policies that are not personally identified with them. It's a fact, yeah. uh, and so. Khrushchev did, I mean, he, did, and by the way, some of these things had very practical reasons. Like Russia had a manpower shortage because so many guys had been killed both by communism and by the war. Mm -hmm. So like in 1950, the the sex ratio in the guys 25 to 49, you know, the, the people who get most of the work done in the world. In Russia, it was 0.6. There were 60 men for every 100 women. Mm -hmm. They were, you know. A lot of the things that should have been getting done in Russia weren't getting done because those guys were dead. But they also still had a fair – they had demobilized some. But they still had a pretty large army after World War II. And the other thing is uh, having guys in concentration camps isn't actually terribly productive either. And they had something like 10 million or 11 million in the gulag. Mm -hmm. And Khrushchev, you know, he could say to himself, look, I know most of this is all political bullshit anyhow. I never liked Stalin. And I could get 10 million guys who could go out. They could work in a factory. They could farm. They could, they could get, you know, they could invent things. They, I said, you know, 10 million guys. I need people. And, uh, and you know, the army was not as big, but I think he shrank it by more like half or something. So, you know, we, another couple of million guys free. You know, we can get stuff done. Uh, I mean, now that also has the merit. I think in many ways it's, uh, you know, it's good 
know, it's moral, but yeah. it was also effective. But the thing is, it was possible to do that. If you have, it's not his policies he's abandoning, it's that other guy's policies. Uh, and so, uh, uh, if we had new leadership in Russia, even a guy who was f- way less than perfect, he might say, yeah, I don't think I actually want to invade a neighboring country and lose. <sighs> okay, because, you know, that probably doesn't seem like a very wonderful and effective things to do. So mm-hmm. things could get better surprisingly fast if we get lucky. See, I – the. Things getting worse. I mean, even if it's not likely, the, the sort of mean value seems so bad. Things can get so much worse than they can oh, get better it's, it's that on average it's probably going to be worse. It's very much worth thinking about what we can do if things even stay as bad as they are. And it's worth thinking about the, the feasible ways in which it was, it might get worse. I mean, the, you know, moderately likely ways opposed to one in a million. I mean, we could. You know, we could, at the same time as this happens, be invaded by hostile aliens and re-release the Black Plague. But hopefully, it won't all happen at once. But, but we can see real problems from, uh, uh, you know, food-related and fuel-related mm-hmm. problems. And it's certainly worth thinking of things we can do. Uh, like, you know, I would say if we, if if Germany reopened its reactors, if that's feasible, mm-hmm. if the United States kept some, um, or even reopened a few coal plants. On the grounds that you know things are short, uh, uh, again, it wouldn't have to be forever. Uh, there are uh, there are things. I mean, if we can say, you know, you don't have to grow uh, uh, sugar beets; you can grow something else that will produce more per acre. And by the way, prices on everything are high. I mean, in a sense, these guys would say, I have specialized equipment for sugar beets that I can't use, but they, you know, they won't lose their shirt this year. No farmer will. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless they go to Vegas or something. Uh, oh, actually, that's not quite true. It also depends on what your costs are. But I think most of these farmers have, you know, demands up and supplies down. People should find ways of making money. I mean, they could be leveraged, right? They could have borrowed a lot of money based on expectations of future profits. Yeah, and, and now they're facing inflation. You know how horrible it is to face inflation when you've just borrowed a lot of money? <laughs> yeah. And then you have to pay it back with cheaper dollars? Uh, 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 like that old Saturday Night Live five, uh, Saturday Night Live thing in which we had somebody doing a Carter impression that says, "Wouldn't you like to have a fifty thousand dollar car?" Inflation is your friend. Well, if you're in anybody who's leveraged, inflation is their friend. Uh, I mean, at least on average. Right, uh, right. And the opposite problem, uh, you know, it's hard for people to believe, but there was a period after the Civil War in which dollars were gradually getting more valuable. Because most currency was gold-backed. Yeah, things are completely different. And, and the world, you know, production was increasing so much with, uh, you know, new areas being farmed in the America and Canada, Argentina and Australia, where, you know, you were getting better, you know, you're starting to use steam engines more. You could get to more places. Uh, the pr- production was growing faster. And, and, mo- and the money supply wasn't really growing very much at all because – at least for a while, you know, the only way for it to grow was you had to find more gold. Right. And, uh, and in fact, this is why they had the free silver movement, because farmers were saying, I, I borrowed $100, and you want me to pay back 130 effectively. Mm-hmm. That was – and it's so different from anything today. I mean, how many people remember – I mean, I guess if you were – 
if your whole business was, uh, you know, I guess if maybe if you did something that's getting radically cheaper, like electronics, maybe you could have something like this happen. But for most people, you know, like if we're happy, we think of low inflation. If we're sad, we think of high inflation. But we rarely worry about deflation. Right. But it has happened. It has happened. Uh, uh, I think it's relatively easy for a central bank to stop it if you don't have like a, a, a gold-based currency, if you don't have a oh, yeah. commodity-based currency. Oh, yeah. So. But if you – of course, it's also possible for it to do any old damn thing because yeah. – and, and they often do. That was the positive side of having a, a you know, battalion. Oh, definitely. Bank. There's – yeah, there's uh, huge. At, but uh, but any rate, uh, there are some things that could be done that were cheap. Uh, and if we just – you know, what you really want to do is make it fashionable. I mean, if we make something fashionable, everybody will do it, even if it's totally stupid. I mean, like, what was the deep economic reason for the Germans closing down their nuclear reactors? There is none. What if we made it fashionable for people to start their own gardens? Could that make, make much of an impact? Uh, you know, I don't think uh, – no, that's the thing where we can look at history and see. What was the sort of production? You know, people had victory gardens right, in right. World War II. I think probably World War One as well. Now, the United States, it was not that we were really short, but we were having to make up for shortages uh, in other places to the extent that we could. I mean, shortages that were happening because, for example, productive land had been conquered by Japan or Germany, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, and, and so it wasn't crazy. But off the top of my head, my suspicion is the total amount produced by things like Victory Gardens wasn't huge. But it wouldn't do any harm to take a look at it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, and and also, I don't think it'd have any great harm because we got people outdoors getting a little exercise. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's it's not a COVID threat if they're outdoors. They're uh, now. There's one part about it which is positive, but I don't really like doing things this way. Which is we're doing something that isn't very useful, but it's symbolic, and so it sort of drags people into you know a way of. Like, they're more likely to support us if they're doing things that show their support. My only problem is I get really tired of having people do things for show that are useless. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. You know, uh, I would rather that they did it, but it's not entirely useless. Uh, so I think the first thing I do is I go back and see what were the numbers when people were doing. And, of course, we'd also have all these people said, I don't want to grow a bunch of potatoes in my backyard. Well, you're not a public-spirited citizen. <laughs> And we're going to try to get you fired and shame you because you're not growing any potatoes. And the right answer is, I don't want any of that crap. But if it became moderately fashionable without being compulsory for people to garden more and grow a few things to eat, I don't think it would do any great harm. But, you know, if it, people are saying, oh, you have to do it or you're not a true American, I said, oh, come on. Uh, I mean, there will be all sorts of people whose knees hurt to say, I don't want to go out and plant potatoes. My you know, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, like if I grew potatoes, they'd have a negative value because water is expensive in New Mexico, mm -hmm. <laughs> particularly municipal water. I mean, I'd spend, you know, 20 times on, on water what I get back in potatoes. It's hard to see how, how that's really a sensible thing. Uh, I guess I need to grow desert edible plants, if I can think of any. There must be some. Uh, but... Uh, but there are places where it's not like that. You know, it's certainly not crazy. Um, and, you know, there's lots of places in Europe where, uh, I mean, I could th the closest I could think to this, in fact, this case was practical. When the Soviet Union fell apart, their economy fell apart. It was designed to do certain things, and all those things, a lot of those things stopped, partly because 
the average thing they made in a factory was not saleable at, at, in the world market. Mm-hmm. It was only saleable in the closed market because it wasn't very good. And the other problem is that there were actually integrated systems of things in which, uh, you know, this thing is being built and this part is made in Moscow and this part is made in Kazakhstan and this is made in Kiev. And those kind of got broken up because they were separate countries now. Speaking of which, I believe there's a certain number of spare parts for Russian weapons that were actually made in the Ukraine, and that may not be a good thing for the Russians. Yeah. Maybe. By the way, Ukraine does not have a reciprocal problem because so many of its weapons are coming in as aid. I mean, it, has, it must have a little bit, but, you know, it's getting other people's production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we um, um, wrap, rate, uh, yeah, wrap it up? And... Yes. So, uh, uh, any rate, in Russia in the 90s, people planted potatoes and it kept them from starving. Mm-hmm. It can be useful. Uh, but victory gardens. I'm going to go back and look and see exactly how useful they were the last time. I wonder if we could help people in Africa grow gardens. Is there special kinds of food or fertilizer we could ship to them and if that oh, would be no. an efficient way? Most of those people, you know, they most of those people farm already and they know, they certainly know at least some things that work locally. What you really want is things that work better than what they used to that they're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I don't, there may be some such things. Uh, I can certainly think of some, but, you know, there, a lot of these things are already pretty well known. I mean, mm-hmm. I can think of things that are kind of foods you grow when things are tight. Uh, one of them is cassava. Mm-hmm. It's it's tough. It's hard to kill. Uh, it lives a long time. But, you know, Africans are pretty familiar with cassava. You need to look at uh, something else. Oh, like here's an example. Uh, if you had something designed by genetic engineering but that also breeds true and that has some advantage over some of the crops that are already growing. I don't know something like this off the top of my head, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, uh, as I said, you know, they, they, they certainly typically know a suite of methods that works in their locale, but they have problems like, I don't have any money. I can't get any fertilizer. It didn't rain this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, one thing you could say is, well, I guess in a few countries we could say, now you have a civil war getting in the way. Stop now or you will have visitors. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I don't know what else we could do instantly in Ethiopia other than tell people, go home, stop fighting. And I don't know that they listen, by the way. Uh, but, you know, it's I've heard estimates that, you know, lots of people are starving because of that civil war right now. You know, maybe you could do something. Uh, but, you know, I mean, even to the extent we know a lot of things about agriculture, not all those things apply in Africa. It's a different environment. Any anyway, rate, enough. All right. All right. Good night. Okay, take care. Okay.